0: I feel kind of like God. And then this man with the devil on his hand came and took the hat. Free Britney. Free Britney. <laughs> Be, careful. Be careful. You never know you might get dead to death. Hello and welcome back. Unless this is your first time listening, then just welcome. You are listening to Dab to Death, and I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage. I'm probably going to jump straight ahead into the episode like I did last week, considering there's a lot to talk about here. But before I get into the episode, I'm going to talk about what I'm smoking on. As usual, I've got some Paper Planes products, I've got some Grapes and Cream Live Resin, don't know if it'll be hitting the shelves uh, soon, but it's delicious, so if it doesn't, I'm sorry. Uh, I also have, uh, God, I wish I could remember, uh, some Tahoe OG live resin, which is definitely going to be hitting the shelves soon, so keep an eye out for that, and I have, ah, yes, an Alien OG live resin cartridge. Yeah, anyway. Um, but yeah, so I think I'm going to go ahead and start the episode off with a dab like I always do. And then we're going to jump into Charles Manson, Part 2, The Founding of a Family. And this was like one dysfunctional family. Like, they put the funk in dysfunctional. And not like, we got the funk, you gotta have that funk. No, not, not the good funk. This was like the bad funk. Like, the you smell something bad and it's stank funk. Like that kind of funk, the real bad funk, the funky funk, Marky marking the funky bunch. Anyway, so yeah, I'm going to start with a dab. Oh, I also have some of the uh, kosher kush shatter, which should be hitting shelves very soon as well. So keep an eye out for that. While I'm preparing my dab, I don't know if anybody else here is a fan of Last Podcast on the Left, but they are actually one of my all time favorite podcasts. And I just found out that they have their own weed line now. So I'm going to try and track down some of that because I would love to be able to review their product on the podcast because they're huge idols of mine, or like, you know. I definitely look up to them a lot and I would love to be able to accomplish what they have accomplished as far as a podcast goes. Um, So I will keep you guys updated on that and I will try to track some down and smoke some last podcast on the left. I think they should, they kind of missed an opportunity though. They should have called it last podcast on the left for the weed strain or the weed company, whatever the brand. Anyway, y'all can have that idea for free. Just saying. You know, I'm not usually huge on grapes and cream. You know, we we had it for a while as shatter. We had a lot of it and I kind of burnt out on it. But this this grapes and cream live resin is absolutely phenomenal. It's got like this beautiful yellow color, uh, a nice super wet battery. It's not like super wet, but like a nice wet batter consistency. Um, really good smell to it. (sighs) Yeah, definitely keep an eye out for paper planes, live resin. There's going to be about, I want to say like 10,000 grams hitting the shelves very soon. So if not more, honestly, so get it while you can. I take my sweater off, it's a a little warm in here. (coughs) what i really like about it is even with my rig set to a little bit of a higher temperature so i can take a little bit bigger of a dab you still get a really good flavor profile that comes through you know it doesn't really doesn't taste burnt doesn't taste like nasty Uh, You you know, you can always tell you have really good oil, uh, especially if you use a Q-tip or something to clean out your your banger in between dabs. You can always tell when you have really good oil because the Q-tip comes out like a nice light golden color as opposed to that nice burnt black bullshit sometimes. You know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh fuck! <coughs> <coughs> uh, remember, folks, spay and neuter your children. Sheesh! All right, as I mentioned, this is Dab to Death, and I am your host, Nick Nobody Savage, and this is Charles Manson Part Two. Pretty girl, pretty, pretty girl. Cease to exist. Just come and say you love me. Give up your work. Come on, you can't be. So, last week we talked about uh, the Tate and LaBianca murders that occurred on August 8th and 9th of 1969. It was the end of the Age of Innocence, basically. You know, the, the hippie era was coming to an end, and it came to a very violent and bloody one. Charles Manson basically destroyed the hippie age. So, as I've mentioned, uh, this week we are going to get into who Charles Manson really was and uh, who the kinds of people that followed him were. You know, we're going to talk about basically the uh, the core group that uh, committed the murders or was involved, you know, in, in various ways. In last week's episode, I told the tale of the Manson family murders that occurred in August of 1969. The now infamous murders that took the lives of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, Wojciech Frykowski, Stephen Parent, and Leno and Rosemary Labianca. Yeah, pretty sure it was Leno, not Leno. But moving forward. From the very beginning, this is a story like many we have heard before. Charles Mills Manson wasn't born into the best of circumstances and spent most of his life floating in and out of state homes as well as serving several stints in jails and prisons. And, like most of our other stories, this tale took a dark and disturbing turn, a turn that ended in the tragedy we all know. Now, let's take a look at the man behind this madness and the family that formed around him. Born on November 12, 1934, Charles Mills Manson was the son of a 16-year-old alcoholic prostitute named Kathleen Manson Bauer Cavender, born Kathleen Maddox. He was born at the University of Cincinnati Academic Health Center in Cincinnati, Ohio. Though many have claimed that he never knew his father, a paternity suit filed by his mother in 1937 revealed him to be Colonel Walker Henderson Scott Sr. of Catlettsburg, Kentucky. He led Kathleen to believe that he actually was a colonel in the army, but he was simply a con man who who worked in local mills, and colonel was nothing more than his given name. When Kathleen revealed to him that she was pregnant, he claimed that he was called away on military business, which is basically like the army equivalent of going to get a pack of cigarettes. You know? And then just never coming back. Although I did read somewhere that, like, actually uh, Colonel would come and pick up little Charlie and, you know, take him out and hang out with him, And so he, he he was a part of his life. I think a few months before Charles was born, Kathleen married William Eugene Manson, a quote laborer at a dry cleaning business. I really have to wonder why laborer was put in quotation marks. Like, was he, like, not actually a laborer at the wa- laundromat? Was it, like, a front or something? Or a dry cleaner? Sorry. You know? Maybe, maybe he was, like, uh... You know. Oh, yeah. Go take out the dry cleaning. You know? Whack, whack. Yeah, I took out the dry cleaning. I hung the suits up. You know? Next thing you know, there's three bodies under the Brooklyn Bridge. This wasn't even in Brooklyn. Anywho. The marriage did not last long, which could probably be attributed to Kathleen's frequent drinking binges with her brother Luther. During these sprees, young Charlie would be mostly left with various babysitters or to his own devices. In April 1937, the two were divorced, with William Manson citing gross neglect of duty by Kathleen, which in the 1930s really just meant that she wouldn't do things like cook dinner for him, or do the dishes, or stay on top of laundry for him. Like, from what I read, Kathleen was kind of a free-spirited woman, and as we all know, back then, being a free-spirited woman meant you were problematic. And that's just fucked up and not fair. So, that's also, I forgot to mention that uh, alcoholic prostitute, I had that in quotation marks as well, because... Just because she liked to drink and she had to be a sex worker to make money for a while doesn't mean that she was a bad person. Like, she did the best she could in her situation. Granted, probably could have paid a little more attention to your kid. Little more. Something. Anything. Anyway. Oh, I even said that, you know, it also, however, meant that she didn't really raise her son either. After the divorce, Charles would go on to retain the Manson last name. Two years later, in August of 1939, Kathleen and her brother Luther were arrested for burglary and assault. Luther was sentenced to ten years and Kathleen was sentenced to five, leaving little Charlie to live with an aunt and uncle in McMeachin, 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 West Virginia. Anyway. His mother was paroled in 1942, and the family moved to Charleston, West Virginia. Thank you, Charleston, for being easy to fucking pronounce. They moved to Charleston, West Virginia, where she spent her nights drinking, and Charlie spent his days skipping school. Kathleen continued to get into trouble with the law, including getting arrested for grand larceny. She managed to avoid a conviction, and the family then moved to Indianapolis, where she met a fellow alcoholic with the last name of Lewis at an AA meeting, and the two were married in August 1943. It was at the ripe young age of nine when Manson began getting into trouble. According to an interview with Diane Sawyer, Manson said it was when he set his school on fire. He also began to get in trouble for petty theft and truancy, which I had mentioned he was already skipping school. At like nine years old, this kid was burning buildings down, skipping school, and stealing shit. You know, nowhere near a criminal mastermind, but off to a bad start. Eventually, Manson was placed into the Gibault School for Boys in Terre Haute, Indiana, by his mother at the age of 13 because she could no longer control his bad behavior. It was a strict reform school for delinquent boys run by Catholic priests. I'll let you use your imagination from that point. It's kind of like a repressed memories Mad Libs. You know, fill in the blank. Except it's put it in the blank. <clears throat> Sorry. Sorry. So, his stay there was short-lived as he ran away from the school and stayed on the streets, or wherever he could, really, until returning home for Christmas later that year, 1947. I would also like to point out that most of the, uh, the Manson girls, the followers, were born at around this time. So, keep that in mind. His mother returned him to the to the Gibault School. Gibault, Gibault. We're not doing this again. His mother returned him to the Gibault School, but just ten months later, wily little Charlie escaped again and ran off to Indianapolis. It was there that Manson committed his first documented crime in 1948 when he robbed a grocery store. I'm kind of picturing good girls, but it's just Charles Manson's scrawny ass yelling at a fucking cantaloupe for five minutes. So, for a brief period of time, Charlie actually tried to fly the straight and narrow. He even had a job delivering messages for Western Union. Again, I'm just picturing him yelling at people. Got a telegram for you, man! Anyway, so... However, the lure of a life of crime was too much for him, and he began to resort to petty theft to supplement his wages. Of course, he was caught again, because he was kind of a terrible criminal, and in 1949 a judge cut Manson a break and sent him to Boys Town in Omaha, Nebraska. Only four days later, Manson the Magician escaped from Boys Town with a fellow student named Blackie Nielsen. The two obtained a gun and stole a car, which they used to commit a couple of armed robberies on their way to Blackie's uncle's place in Peoria, Illinois. Uncle Nielsen was a professional thief, and it is believed that he took the two young boys under his wing as apprentices. Maybe this is where Charlie gained the training that would come in handy for the family's creepy crawl missions. I'm guessing that the training wasn't that effective, however, because two weeks later, Manson was arrested again and was linked to his earlier robberies. He was then sent to the Indiana Boys School, another very strict reform school. During his time there, he was allegedly raped and beaten repeatedly by other students, and it is even said that it was at a staff member During his time there, he was allegedly raped and beaten repeatedly by other students. And it is even said that it was a staff member that was encouraging this to happen. See, like I said, I'm pretty sure this was happening at, like, all these places. Not surprisingly, Charlie continued his Houdini routine and ran away from the school 18 times. He also came up with something that he called the insane game which was basically a defense mechanism he came up with where he he would act as batshit crazy as possible in an effort to scare people away from him. You've seen the videos where he just starts flailing his arms around and making the funny faces and sticking his tongue out and it's pretty effective. He looks batshit crazy. I think he was batshit crazy. But he looks batshit crazy, so it worked. After another escape and the inevitable crime spree that followed, Charles Manson was finally sent to prison in 1951. He would spend the next 20 years, uh, and actually this was like federal prison from what I hear, mostly he got sentenced to federal time. Um, you know, and like the, the sentences for a lot of federal crimes, even if it's the same crime as like a non-federal crime, it's just, the sentence is a lot worse. A lot longer. So, he was in and out of prison for a long time. So, yeah, he was finally sent to prison in 1951. He would spend the next 20 years going in and out of different prisons. While on parole in 1955, Manson actually married and had a son named Charles Manson Jr. Could you imagine being Charles Manson Jr.? Like, holy fucking shit. Number one, I would definitely change my name. Or would I? Maybe I would keep it, because I guarantee you nobody would fuck with Charles Manson Jr. Like, would you? Anyway. Fast forward to 1967. The golden age of peace and love is in full swing, and a scraggly-haired, wild-eyed man named Charles Manson is fresh out of prison and loose in San Francisco. Technically, being in the Bay Area should have been considered a parole violation. But instead, Manson was transferred to San Francisco and put in put under the supervision of federal probation officer Roger Smith. Smith also worked at a clinic in the Haight-Ashbury studying the effects of drugs like LSD and methamphetamines. Um, So they actually would like give these people LSD I don't know if they were handing out methamphetamine too, but like, that's a bad idea. But like these people were just handing out LSD. So Manson and later several members of the Manson family would actually participate in these studies. It was written during the study that the change in Manson's personality after being exposed to LSD was quote, the most abrupt that Roger Smith had observed in his entire professional career. End quote. So like, Basically, the the acid did something to him. It, it activated something. Like there was already like this like criminality there, and this like a little bit of craziness, a little bit of you know, a little bit of whatever. But the acid definitely triggered something in him, and it uh, it 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 it, it changed him. It turned little Charlie Manson into Charles fucking Manson. <laughs> Anyway, after reading A Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert A. Heinlein and inspired by the Free Love Movement, Manson began to put together his own bizarre philosophy and preach it to all who would listen. His philosophy was said to be a mix of the Bible, Stranger in a Strange Land, our friends over at the Church of Scientology, Dale Carnegie, and the Beatles. And for those of you that aren't familiar, Dale Carnegie was actually an American writer and lecturer, Um, and basically he was like one of the first guys to start the whole like self-help thing, you know, like he wrote a bunch of self-help bullshit, and looking at some of the book titles here, we've got How to Win Friends and Influence People, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living, The Art of Public Speaking, The Leader in You, So yeah, basically it's just all motivational, self-help shit. Charles Manson quickly gained a following, mostly targeting young women and social outcasts. Using a combination of LSD and unconventional sexual practices, Manson attempted to reprogram their minds to make them into empty vessels into which he could pour his bullshit. And thus, Charles Manson went from being a petty criminal nobody knew about to a cult leader, and the Manson family was born. I think I'm going to take a quick dab break, because I already have cotton mouth anyway, so why not? Alright, this time I think I'm going to try the uh, the Tahoe OG. Uh, so this is more of like, um, this is more of a diamond consistency, um... This one's going to take a little bit longer to hit shelves, so you might have to wait a little while, but if you're in California and you happen to see paper planes on the shelf, do yourself a favor. Grab the live resin. I would have to say one of my favorites, though, still been, I mean, like, the Donnie Burger was really good. The Compton's Creek is delicious. Um... Honestly, I'm I'm still super super impressed with that snow lotus shatter. That shit is delicious. Especially for shatter, like holy shit. Anyway, dab time. definitely an OG. (coughs) (coughs) Okay. So, who were the kinds of people that would follow Charles Manson? Let's take a look at some of his most loyal and notorious followers. Although I realize that ironically enough, uh, the first person I talk about is Linda Kasabian, and she's far from Manson's like most loyal follower. First, let's meet Linda Kasabian, who, if you remember from last week's episode, was present at both murders but did not actually participate in them and would later go on to be the star witness for the prosecution. Linda Darlene Druin, later Kasabian, was born on June twenty-first, 1949, in Bidford, Maine, and was raised in Milford, New Hampshire. Her parents argued often, mostly brought on by financial stresses, and they divorced while she was still fairly young. They both remarried, but Linda hated her stepfather and ran away at 16 because of his mistreatment of herself and her mother. Cassabian then traveled to the west coast where she was quickly married to a man named Robert Peasley, and just as quickly divorced. She then tried living with her father in Miami, but things didn't quite work out, and she moved to Boston where she married Robert Cassabian and gave birth to a daughter in 1968. Just think, if only she had married a Robert Kardashian instead of a Robert Cassabian Would have been a whole different life for her. I mean, different timelines, but whatever. It could work. So, things began to fall apart with Robert as well, and she returned to living with her mother in New Hampshire. Robert eventually lured her out to Los Angeles to live with him, using promises of a sailing trip to South America, which he would actually eventually go on, just without her. Nice guy. Linda's growing unhappiness would eventually lead her to Spawn Ranch, where she would meet Charles Manson and change the course of her life forever. She was instantly drawn to the kind and loving words that were showered upon her, and her first night at the ranch, she had sex with Tex Watson, which she described as a very intense encounter. When she was introduced to Manson, she thought he was very Christ-like and very handsome. This kind of comes up a lot. Everybody thought he was Jesus. Like, all these girls were like, I thought he was Jesus. He seemed like Jesus. He told me he was Jesus. It, it's a theme. anywho. after a brief conversation about what brought her to the ranch and copping a quick feel of her legs, Manson accepted her into the family. Like, he literally was just like, so, uh, what brings you here? She's like, I, I just, I just didn't, I just didn't want to live at home anymore. And and he goes, no, nah, no, nah, you know what really brings you here? You hate your father. She goes, oh, my God, I hate my stepfather. I do have daddy issues. Yeah, yeah, you got daddy issues. So uh, I'm going to be your daddy. She's like, okay. And he's just like, hold on, hold on. Feels her legs real quick. Runs his hands up and down. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to be your daddy. Sorry. <clears throat> A little carried away there. Anyway, next, let's talk about Leslie Lulu Van Houten. He, what he would, well, some of the girls, see, would suggest to other people that he was Jesus Christ. And then what he would do is he'd go on a big thing about how he didn't want anyone to call him Jesus Christ because, you know, they crucified him. So in a way, I think that uh, he would have, you know, feed it to certain people who would give it to others and then deny it, you know. Do you understand what I'm saying? Well, Charlie was always very careful that no one could put definite, things on him. Leslie was another one of Manson's girls, devoted to him and whatever he wanted. Leslie Van Houten was born on August 23, 1949 in Altadena, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. Her childhood was fairly normal as far as I could tell. She was raised in a middle-class, church-going family with an older brother and two adopted siblings, a brother and sister, who were both Korean. After her mother and father divorced when she was 14, Leslie began to take LSD, smoke hashish, and started abusing Benzedrine, which I'm assuming is some form of amphetamines. Because when I looked it up, that's all that came up was amphetamine. And I was like, okay, getting away from that topic. At 15, she ran away for a while, but came back home to try and finish high school. After being forced by her mom to undergo a very late-term abortion at seventeen, Leslie felt a growing anger towards and distance from her mother, which eventually prompted her to leave home and brought her to the commune at Spawn Ranch. I don't blame her at all for having an issue with her mother about this one, because from what I uh, from what I understood is basically her mom forced her to undergo the abortion but then told her that because it was so late term, it couldn't be considered an abortion, and then she forced her to bury the fetus in the backyard. So, that's super fucked up, and uh, I don't blame her for leaving at all. Unfortunately, it brought her to Charles Manson. Leslie was actually living at another commune when she met Catherine Cher and Bobby Boucher. Remember him? Still not pronouncing that last name. And she ended up moving in with them and another woman. Constant arguments and jealousy broke up the happy quadruple, causing Catherine and Leslie to join the Manson family. Leslie was 19 at the time. Shortly after moving to Spawn Ranch, Leslie called her mom and told her that she would never be coming home or making contact with her ever again. According to her... Manson controlled everything about life at the ranch. He told them what to do, including when to eat, sleep, and even have sex. He would also give out doses of LSD all the time, making sure to take smaller doses himself. Because, you know, he wanted to maintain a more level head so he could manipulate the other people that were frying their fucking brains out. Anyway. Leslie actually later claimed that she became saturated in acid and had trouble grasping reality without psychedelic drugs. According to Barbara Hoyt, a former family member who testified during the trials, Leslie was actually considered a leader in the family. So, like, there, there was a lot of this back and forth of, like, oh, we didn't know what was going on. Like, I it was just, like, it was all Charlie, but then, like, there was, like, a hierarchy and there was a leadership and she was one of the leaders. So I don't know. But then again, like I said, he was giving them all copious amounts of LSD and then just being like, I am God. I'm Jesus. We are all one. We are, we're all here to fuck and ride dune buggies in the desert. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He really just wanted to ride some dune buggies. That's all I wanted. And, and, you know, acid and sex. But mostly just the dune buggies, I think. <clears throat> anyway, speaking of the trials, 19-year-old Leslie Lulu Van Houten did not seem to take the trial seriously at all. In fact, she would often giggle in the middle of the proceedings, especially during testimony about the victim's. She would later claim that this was because she was actually being supplied a steady stream of LSD during the trial, which I've been in court before, and I don't know if that's really the place that I would want to be doing acid. The judge would be like, how do you plead? And I'd just be sitting there like, dude, your, your honor, d- did you know that your robes are melting? Like, not the place to do it. Definitely not the place to do it. Anyway. Let's give Leslie a rest and move on to the next member of this super dysfunctional family. Susan Sexy Sadie Atkins, a.k.a. Sadie Mae Glutz, as she was known within the family. I remember when we first went in, uh, one of the people said, Who are you? And Tex said, I'm the devil, and I'm here to do the devil's business. And I remember that in my conscience, it's so alive in me, even just recalling it, I remember that I had gone so far and there was no turning back. Even if I had wanted to run, even if I had wanted to leave, I couldn't. It was like I was caught in something that I had no control over. I had absolutely no say-so as to what was happening there. I was just like a tool in the hands of the devil is the only way I can put it. Susan Atkins was born on May seventh, 1948 in San Gabriel, California, to alcoholic parents, according to Susan. Her mother died of cancer when she was around 15 years old, and her life pretty much fell apart over the next three years. After moving to Los Baños, California, which I didn't pay a whole lot of attention in Spanish, and it was a long time ago, so I don't remember a lot, but I'm pretty sure that Los Baños translates to the toilet or the bathroom, I think. So great town to move into uh so after moving to los baños california with her father and younger brother the kids were left to fend for themselves when their father took a job helping build the san Luis dam talk about a shitty situation sorry that was a bad joke guess i'm allowed one anyway up until this point susan had been a fairly average student but given the circumstances, her grades plummeted once she started attending Los Banos High School. I guess you could say that her grades really went down the shitter. Okay, yeah, no, I'm, I'm done, I promise. It didn't make things any easier when she was forced to get a job during her junior year of high school in order to take care of her younger brother. Skip ahead a little bit to 1967, and an 18-year-old Susan Atkins is introduced to Charles Manson when he's playing guitar at the house she's living at with some friends. Manson actually used his music and this charming, like, love guru meets rock star persona he had adopted quite a lot to try and attract young women to join the family. And honestly, he wasn't that bad of a musician. Like, the song you heard at the beginning of the episode was his song Cease to Exist, which Dennis Wilson from the Beach Boys actually stole and released on their 1969 album, 2020, titled Never Learn Not to Love. But basically, yeah, there's a Charles Manson song on a Beach Boys album. Fun fact. After being left homeless by a police raid, you know, the 60s just sounded like a very crazy period of time, honestly. Susan was officially invited to join Manson and his growing family, who was traveling in an all-black bus at the time. Shortly after joining them, the Manson family settled into their new and now infamous home, Spahn Ranch. It was here that, in October of 1968, less than a year before the murders were committed. And actually, if you really think about this, the timeline here is a very, very short time span. Charles Manson gets out of prison in April of 1967, and by August of 1968, just two years and four months later, Sharon Tate and all of her friends and the LaBiancas are dead. And then Charles Manson and the family get arrested, and it all goes down in history. So it was here that in 1968, Susan got pregnant by a guy named Bruce White and gave birth on October 7th to a son, who Charles Manson named, get ready for this one, the Zozo's Zadfrak Glutz. Thankfully for that kid, he was adopted after the arrest for the murders and was renamed, hopefully, to something a little more fucking normal. And I guess now would be a great time to talk more about the murder of Gary Hinman, which I touched briefly on in last week's episode. As I mentioned last time, by the summer of 1969, The Manson family and Spawn Ranch were starting to attract a lot of attention from the police for their involvement in a string of car thefts, not to mention all of the underage runaways that would find their way to the ranch. As part of his bid to get his followers to move out to the desert with him, remember the whole dune buggy thing, Manson decided that the group should try their hands at selling drugs. In what I'm assuming was an attempt gone wrong to rob someone of their drugs, a plan which was supposedly concocted by tex watson who we'll talk about next manson ended up shooting a man named bernard lots of papa crow yeah lots of papa like i'm guessing he was a big dude like there's lots of papa to love you know but uh i kind of like the name manson was not only convinced that he had killed lots of papa but that Crow was also a member of the Black Panthers, and that they would be coming back to exact their pound of flesh. None of this was true. Even lots of Papa had survived the incident. But Manson's growing paranoia drove him to urge his followers to come up with even more money for the move to the desert. So, also remember, they were supposed to be looking for this bottomless pit that would allow them to wait out the coming race war, because, you know, helter-skelter and all that bullshit. But... Like I said, that was mostly just Bugliosi trying to, like, come up with some fucking batshit theory to explain the batshit shit shit that happened, you know? He wanted to sound like a hotshot, I think, really. So, one of his followers then brought up a rumor that Gary Hinman, who was an acquaintance of the family, that occasionally provided hallucinogenic substances. A drug dealer, okay? He was their drug dealer. Anyway so there was a rumor that he had just inherited a pretty large sum of money. Hoping to persuade Hinman to join the group, donating his inheritance in the process, Manson sent Susan Atkins, Bobby Boucher, and Mary Brunner, who was actually Manson's first follower, to visit Gary on July 25, 1969, which was just two weeks before the Tate and LaBianca murders. Of course, Gary Hinman denied having ever inherited any money. So, Bobby beat the shit out of him. After he continued to deny having any money, Charles Manson himself showed up at Hinman's house. In a rage, he ends up swinging a sword at Hinman, cutting his face and ear pretty severely. He leaves and instructs Susan and Mary to tend to his wounds. Two days later, Manson and Boucher have Hinman sign over the titles to his cars. So I'm a little confused here because it just jumps from they cut his face and ear to two days later. Like, did they keep him the entire two days? Because, like, otherwise I would have gone straight to the fucking cops. So two days later, Manson and Boucher have Hinman sign over the titles to his cars, then kill him. Boucher leaves a bloody handprint and the words Political Piggy written in blood on the wall, hoping to make it look like the work of the Black Panthers. He is, however, arrested August 7th, 1969, the day before the Tate murder. And he's kind of a fucking idiot because he fell asleep in one of Hinman's vehicles, still had blood on him from the murders, and the murder weapon was actually in the wheel well of the car. So this guy was not very smart. Now, as promised, let's talk about one of Manson's right-hand man's... Men? Right-hand men. Let's talk about Tex motherfucking Watson. I picked up Dennis Wilson uh, hitchhiking and uh, took Dennis home in Pacific Palisades in California here. And went in and uh, met Charles Manson. So Charles was at his house. Exactly. And we began smoking uh, hashish together. And uh, he had a very cunning uh, way of uh, singing, smiling, the way that just attracted you and, and, and um, made you want more of what he had. Which was nothing. Which was nothing, exactly. And of course, uh, we kept following him and thinking that uh, he was the answer. Tex's story plays out a little differently than most of those who found their way to Spawn Ranch and into the fold of the Manson family. Most of the others were running away from something, or had troubled lives. Tex honestly just loved the lifestyle. Charles Denton Watson, or Tex as he would later come to be known, because there definitely could not be two Charlies at the ranch, Manson would never allow it. He was born on December 2, 1945, in Dallas, Texas. He was the youngest of three children and, by all appearances, was the poster child for a normal kid. He attended church regularly, was on the honor roll, was editor of the school paper, captain of the football team, and even a track star. Apparently, he even set a state record. After high school, Charles Watson attended the University of North Texas, where he even became a member of the Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity. Like I said, he doesn't really seem like the type to end up at Spawn Ranch, so how exactly did he end up there? In January of 1967, Watson got a job working as a baggage handler at Braniff International, which was an American airline between 1928 and 1982. And one of the perks of the job was obviously free flights. Using one of these free tickets, he decided to visit one of his fraternity brothers that was now living in Los Angeles. Upon arriving, he was instantly drawn to the music scene and psychedelic lifestyle that only Los Angeles in the late 1960s could have provided. Nothing against, like, Woodstock in the East Coast, obviously, like, they have their own scene going, but, like, you know, Los Angeles is, it's a different town, it's a different scene, it's a different vibe. It's motherfucking Hollywood, baby. Anyway, Tex decides he likes it out here entirely too much to go back just yet, and and ends up renting a house in Malibu with a friend. One day, Watson picks up a random hitchhiker who turns out to be none other than Dennis fucking Wilson, the drummer and co-founder of the iconic surf rock band, The Beach Boys, who... Honestly has his own tragic story that maybe I'll actually go into someday. Just not today. Also, remember when I said that Dennis Wilson was not only connected to Charles Manson, but to one of the cast members of the show Euphoria? That's right, it was recently revealed that Dennis Wilson was Alexa Demi's grandfather. By adoption, so technically they're not blood related, but it's still a pretty cool coincidence. Anyway, back to Tex Watson and Dennis Wilson. So Dennis invites Tex to his house, and when they arrive, he is introduced to, you guessed it, Charles Manson. Tex joins the family almost immediately, and we all know by now how that story ends. However, our story today couldn't end without talking about another one of Manson's followers who was instrumental in the Tate and LaBianca murders, and that is Patricia Krenwinkel. But first, I think I'm going to take my last dab break of the episode. I'm going to try me some of this shatter. What was it? The kosher kush? I believe it's the kosher kush. I'm going to try me some of this kosher kush. All right, well, while I'm prepping this dab, I'm going to take this opportunity to put it out there one more time that uh if you are interested in possibly being the new co-host of dab to death please send an email to ghost at dab to death.com with a little bit about yourself and your background uh, maybe how long you've been smoking cannabis uh how, how long you've been interested in true crime who some of your favorite serial killers are some of your favorite topics things you like to talk about, things like that, you know. Like I said before, it's definitely more uh, beneficial if you're close enough to come record on-site, but if not, we might be able to work something else out. So as I said, just send an email, and uh, good luck. Look forward to working with you, maybe. Ooh. Okay. Hmm. Okay, okay. I'm liking the smell. Definitely was a lot stronger when you first like open the 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 sheet, which I really love that Paper Planes uses the PTFE sheets instead of parchment. It's just a way better feel. It just like it's nice and slick. It you know the 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 shit's never gonna stick to it. Like you can sit there and just fucking peel it off, no problem. I I love it. Definitely a little more pull snappy than shatter. This might not be the kosher now that I think about it. Yeah, it definitely had a different different flavor than I was anticipating. But it's not it's not trimmy at all, which you know, you usually expect shatter to taste a little trimmy, but this definitely wasn't. So I like that. Like I said, it's a little turpy because it's more pool snappy. So that's cool. Anyway, back to the story. Though she was mainly referred to by the family as Katie, she went by several names including Yellow, Mary Ann Scott, Marnie Reeves, and Big Patty. So, Patricia Diane Krenwinkel was born on December 3, 1947, in Los Angeles, California. Growing up, she was constantly bullied in school, picked on for being overweight and excessively hairy, which was actually the result of an endocrine condition, and this caused her to suffer from low self-esteem. Her parents divorced when she was 17, and she decided to stay with her father in Los Angeles until she graduated high school. After graduation, she spent a brief period of time teaching catechism, which apparently is just some kind of Catholic thing as far as I could tell. I'm not really into the whole religious thing, so I didn't really look too far into it. And she even considered becoming a nun. A semester into her schooling at a Jesuit college, Patricia dropped out of school and moved back to California. Patty actually met Charles Manson completely by chance. She ran into him with two of his earliest followers, Mary Brunn and Lynette Squeaky Fromm, in Manhattan Beach in 1967. She would later reveal that she and Manson had had sex the very first night they met, and that he was the very first person who ever told her that she was beautiful, or who ever made her feel loved and accepted exactly the way that she was. From that moment on, she became devoted entirely to Charles Manson, turning into one of his most intense followers. In fact, she was so in love with him from that moment that she decided to abandon her life completely and go with Manson and the other girls to San Francisco, even leaving her car, her apartment, and her last paycheck behind. It must have seemed like she just vanished off the face of the earth. I mean, especially back then. You couldn't just, like, Facebook stalk a bitch back then, you know? So, after traveling with the quickly-growing Manson family on an 18-month drug-fueled sexcapade tour of the West Coast, Katie and the family landed back in Los Angeles. It is actually while hitchhiking with another member of the family that she is picked up by, ironically enough, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. So, you see this kind of all comes full circle, right? This is how they met Dennis. This is how that connection got made. And then, you know, because Dennis Wilson knew Charles Manson, that's how Charles Manson got introduced to Terry Melcher. Terry Melcher promised him a fucking record deal never fucking delivered on it. So then he went looking for Terry Melcher, found Sharon Tate. Bam. That's all she wrote. Dennis invited the two girls back to his house, but then actually left them there to go to a recording session. While he was gone, Katie contacted Manson and told him about Dennis Wilson and the mansion that they were currently sitting in. By the time Dennis returned home, Manson and the rest of the family had made themselves quite comfortable. There were people everywhere he looked. They were passed out in the bedrooms, they were eating his food, they were playing music and partying in the yard. It was a madhouse, but Dennis Wilson loved it and allowed them to stay for months. After things fell through with Dennis, it was actually mainly Katie who persuaded George Spawn, who was old as hell and damn near blind, to let the family move into their new home at Spawn Ranch. So you see, Katie was kind of instrumental in all of this happening. And remember, Katie is Patricia. It was the introduction to Dennis Wilson. She got them Spawn Ranch, which was like, you know, every good colt needs a compound. And then eventually they moved out towards the desert, which was what all Manson always wanted because you know he wanted to ride some dune buggies, but you know it was all about helter-skelter, apparently i don't I don't know honestly, the shit he did was still fucked up. He still gave young girls like copious amounts of drugs just so he could have sex with them and manipulate them, and yes he he basically did have people killed. So, I mean, there's no denying that. But, was it this whole Helter Skelter race war thing that Bugliosi tried to, like, make it sound like or make it out to be? I don't know. Like, I really don't. Um, I didn't really talk about him in this one because, you know, he wasn't instrumental in the Tate-LaBianca murders, but... I guess I should mention uh, Bruce Davis, who was basically Charles Manson's right-hand man. Like, you would think Tex Watson would be, like... Tex Watson was like the attack dog you would send after somebody. Whereas Bruce Davis was more like the actual right-hand man, you know? So, a little background on him. Apparently Bruce Davis was born on October 5th, so fun fact, we share a birthday... He was born in Monroe, Louisiana, and he's actually, he was actually charged in the murders of Gary Hinman and Shorty Shea. Even though he technically didn't kill Hinman, he was still charged in the murder um, because he was there at, at one point, I guess. when I think it was when Manson like first attacked him, but I, I don't know how that translates to his murder. But yeah, he was definitely involved in the murder of Shorty Shea. So, I mean, really, that's the story of how a two-bit petty thief and career criminal formed a cult-like following in the age of peace and love. And then he used that family to wreak havoc and commit the heinous murders we all know about today. So, yeah, that was this week's episode. Definitely one of the bigger stories to come out of California, for sure. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to be doing next week, so I will have to keep you guys posted on Instagram and all of the other social media platforms. Speaking of social media platforms, if you have any feedback about this week's episode or any topics you would like to hear in the future, send an email to feedback at dabtodeath.com or just send me a message on any of the social medias at Death. Unless you're on Instagram, then it's at dabtodeathpodcast. Once again, if you're interested in being the Dab to Death co-host, send me a message at ghosthost at dabtodeath.com. And until then, have a great week, guys. Thank you for listening, as always. I really appreciate it. And until next week, be careful out there. You never know and you might get Dab to Death.